O God, whose blessed Son made himself known to his disciples in the breaking of bread, open the eyes of our faith, that we may behold him in all his redeeming work, who lives and reigns with you in the unity of the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. That's the collect appointed for today, the third Sunday after Easter, May the 1st, 2022. You're listening to Faith Seeking Understanding, and I'm your host, John Green. Thanks for being along today. Um, It's been a tough week. It's been a very tough week. We we, um, buried our son, uh, Will, who who experienced this dramatic miracle a year ago of healing from a traumatic brain injury that nobody ever imagined that he would be healed from except for me and Suzanne because, well, the Lord told us he was going to be healed. And so, you know, we lost him last week. And this week we buried him. Um, it was a, a sad, sad moment for us. Um, but I, but I want to quickly add some things I said at the funeral. And that is is that we know that God is sovereign over all things. We know that God is good. So we know he's great and we know he's good. It's the prayer you learned as a child, right? God is great. God is good. And we thank him for our food. By his hands we must be fed. Thank you, Lord, for daily bread. Amen. That was what we prayed around our table when I was a kid. And so <clears throat> the, the knowledge that God is good is the central way in which we need to process everything in life. To be honest with you, as Christians, we need to always remember the central truth that God is good. And so if he's good and he's also great, so if he's good, that that gives us comfort, that whatever he gives us is good. If he's also great, that means he can do anything. There's nothing too hard for him, nothing that's too great for him to accomplish. And so we know that, that he has a, a multitude of choices available to him in any given situation, and we don't know what all those are. We're incapable of knowing it. That's what happens with Job. When Job asks the question, why? God says, were you there when I created all these things? Do you know all these things? Because what he says is everything is related and it was all known to me from the the uh, beginning of creation, and and therefore your story matters, Job. And so what we know is is that so God has a million or you know, some incredible infinite number of choices available to Him, and we know that for those whom who love Him, who He loves, the the choice that He ultimately makes about how things will happen is the best. It doesn't mean it won't be painful for us. It just means it will be the best. And I compared, um, and so that's the way that we need to think as Christians. We need to begin with the premise that God is good. Therefore, all that he does is good because he can only do good. So whatever an outcome is in this life is that outcome because it's best for us. You can deal with the pain. You can, you, you, you're intended to feel pain because we're human, and we don't know things. And it's what we don't know that hurts so much. But the reality is, is that, that Jesus redeemed it all, and he, he's giving us eternal life. The world that we believe should be is. We're just not in it yet. It hasn't been brought into being yet, but it already is, and that's what John tells us in the Revelation, because all times are the same for God. He's present in all those moments. So on an earthly level, on a human level, we're in pain. We hurt. We grieve. But we know on another level as Christians that we will be reunited, and that's an important thing. And and one of the things that, that I want to mention just off the front here in in this is that does does will's death diminish in any way the miracle that god did a year ago no here's the reason because there's a resurrection and that intervened and it's i compare it with lazarus right lazarus was raised from the dead by jesus lazarus got to see the resurrection 
of Jesus. And after that, Lazarus died again. Did that diminish the miracle that, that Jesus did? No, it didn't diminish it at all. It, it, it was the certain hope of resurrection that, that was after that. It was a loving act to restore him to his family. But ultimately, Lazarus was going to die. And so we don't know how much longer that was. What we believe is, is that John is the only gospel writer that, that tells this extraordinary, miraculous story that would have been well-known because the, the re, it would have been well-known. We know that for two reasons. One, there were many people out there grieving with Mary and Martha, and it's only a few miles. It's just outside the Mount of Olives where he is, and so it's, it's close to Jerusalem. And we know from John's gospel that after this, they were seeking to kill Lazarus. And so what we believe is, is, is that John is the last gospel written. We know that to be true. So the last gospel is the only one that tells the story. Why? Probably because Lazarus had since died. So anyway, that, that's the situation. It was a tough week. It was a very emotional week for us. We, it was, we were blessed to have our son Pelham and his wife Anna here. Uh, we were also blessed by a, a very, very large number of friends in, in the two places where we had sort of receiving of friends. And so it, it, it's, it's tough, and, and we have no idea what lies ahead as far as that grieving process is concerned. But we do know this, that, that we have that, that whatever happens is good because we believe that God is in charge of all things. Nothing surprises him. And like I said, it can be painful, but we also acknowledge that it's good. In the same way, Good Friday was painful, but something great came out of it. So anyway, let's let's get started on the on the lessons for today. So what we got is Acts nine one to twenty. Remember what I said last week, and that is is that during the period between Easter and Pentecost, we don't actually read an Old Testament lesson. So we read from the Book of Acts. So we got Acts nine one to twenty, which is the the call of Paul or Saul. Saul, Paul, by the way, God did not rename him. That's not how it works. What happens is the word Saul sounds like, um, <laughs> in, in Greek, it sounds to a Greek hearer at the time, um, something like um, a, a word that would be translated as a little boy who swishes his rear end when he walks. And so he was Paul in the Gentile world. Saul would have been his Hebrew name because he would have been named after, well, King Saul. And he's from that tribe, the tribe of Benjamin. So anyway, but Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus. Now, when we see the still breathing threats, so what we've got is at the end of chapter 8, that's the stoning of Stephen, we have Paul standing there holding the cloaks of those who are doing the stoning, approving of what's going on. So that's what it means, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord. He went to the high priest and asked for letters to the synagogues at Damascus so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. So in other words, what Paul is doing is, is he is arguing for and doing his best to persecute those who believe in Jesus as the Messiah and to drive them out of all the synagogues wherever they may be. And so, so he asked for letters to go to um, the synagogues in Damascus from Jerusalem that certified him as basically a headhunter for these people. Now, as he went on his way, he approached Damascus, which is in Syria, and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him. And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, Who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, 
whom you're persecuting, but rise, enter the city, and you'll be told what you're to do. I mean, can you imagine? He is there breathing fire to come after the, the, anybody who believes that Jesus is the Messiah, and suddenly he hears a voice from heaven and says, Who are you, Lord? And it says, I am Jesus. That could have been the end of everything for Saul. But the grace and the love of God is such that that voice from heaven, where before it had always and only been the voice of God, now is identified as Jesus. And it could have been the end. It could have been judgment on him. But, but no, that's not what happens here. It's a miracle of grace that God called this man who had done his best to destroy the church in its infancy. And he calls him, and the men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice, but seeing no one. Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were opened, he saw nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus, and for three days he was without sight and neither ate nor drank. So he, he fasted for three days, and he had no sight. He was blinded by the light. If you get that, then it's Manfred Mann from like 1976. Um, anyway, so he neither ate nor drank. He fasted those three days because he just did what he was told to do. Rise, enter the city, and you'll be told what you're to do. And so he's waiting, and he's waiting, hopefully, for his sight to be restored. Now, there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias, and the Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias, and he said, Here am I, Lord. He ain't It's what everybody in the Old Testament always says, Here am I, Lord. I'm ready for whatever you want me to do. And I'm sure that, that what, a, what a wonderful moment this would have been for Ananias to hear the voice of the Lord and, and here am I. I'm ready for action. And the Lord said to him, rise and go to the street called Straight. And at the house of Judas, look for a man of Tarsus named Saul. For behold, he's praying and he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him so that he might regain his sight. So it's similar to what happens in, in Acts 10, the, so the next chapter, when, when Peter is sent to Cornelius' house. And Cornelius is told that this man Peter is getting a vision of these men, and Peter is told to go with them. And so, so now God's telling Ananias, look, he's expecting you. I want you to go. But Ananias answered, Lord, I've heard from many about this man how much evil he's done to your saints at Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priests to bind to all who call on your name. So he's saying, Lord, I think you might have made a mistake here. I think you might have misunderstood the situation with this guy Saul. No, if I go there, what's going to happen is he he's going to bind me and I'm going to go to Jerusalem. And, and, and to skip forward, that's exactly the prophetic sign that's given to Paul. Later, when he proposes to go to Jerusalem, Agabus, the prophet, comes, takes Paul's belt, winds it around his wrists, and says, this is what's going to be done to the man who owns this belt if he goes to Jerusalem. He's going to be bound in Jerusalem, and he is. Here, that's exactly what Ananias is afraid of. If I go there, I'm going to be bound and go to Jerusalem. So he's undertaking to tell God what the problem with God's plan is. Have you ever done that? because I certainly have. And that's the reason I started the the sermon today with exactly that story of, or, or the way to think, which is that God is good, and therefore whatever he proposes is good, whether it meets my approval or not. 
But I have to remember always, because God is good and he only gives good gifts to his children, then whatever happens, whatever he gives me is good. And I can trust him. And here Ananias is not trusting God. He's telling God the flaw in God's plan. And, and we've all done it. It would be better if, right, so that the Lord said to him, Go, for he's a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. I'll show him how much he must, have to, must suffer for the sake of my name. You know, there's not room for that theology. I'm going to show him how much he'll suffer for the sake of my name, but he's going to do this willingly. I've chosen him to do this work, and it's not going to be easy. He's going to suffer for the sake of my name. Paul's ready because he's received extraordinary grace. When he could have received, it's I, Jesus, whom you're persecuting, and, and the end is now. Is that way that could have gone, but it didn't because of God's grace and his mercy and his love for this man Saul, who hates his son. And yet, here, he receives grace, and he never lost the appreciation for the grace that he received. And the proof of that is he persevered, no matter what the difficulties were, in the work God gave him to do. He didn't ever, he was never recalcitrant in his duties to the Lord, because he remembered how much grace he had received. He knew that this could have gone a completely different way, and it did not. So Ananias departed and entered the house where Saul was, and laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, he was comforted and he believed God. He believed that Saul was his brother in Christ. And so that's how he greets him, Brother Saul. He's welcoming him into the household of God. And we always need to be welcoming to those into the household of God. He says, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road by which you came, has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. So there are two things that are going to happen. Ananias knows that, that he's going to lay hands on Saul and he's going to be healed and he's going to be filled with the Spirit. And immediately something like scales fell from his eyes, and he regained his sight. Then he rose and was baptized, and taking food, he was strengthened, because he hadn't eaten in three days, remember? For some days he was with the disciples at Damascus. And immediately he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogue, saying, He is the Son of God. So Paul was ultimately converted completely. So the guy who is supposed to go to the synagogues because he has letters to the synagogues allowing him to arrest people who believe that Jesus is the Son of God, that guy who has those letters now stands in the synagogues and proclaims he is the Son of God. Paul knows what's at stake when he says that because he is um, he, he's, he's living proof of the ability to persecute those who believe these things. Paul was red-pilled at a great level. And if you understand that uh, reference to the Matrix, then you'll understand. But, but Paul completely changed everything that he thought. The way that he saw the world and his place in it and everyone else in it was radically altered that day. So he didn't just regain his sight. He had a new way of looking at the world. After this encounter with Jesus on the, on the road to Damascus, he had a radical encounter and a radical change of heart. Paul later will talk all through, you know, in Romans, he'll talk in Romans 12 about don't be conformed to the world, but be transformed by the renewing of your minds. 
And Paul's mind was renewed right here. He accepted all of this is true, and therefore the way that he understood the world, his place in it and everyone else in it, was radically altered that day. You know, in the church, one of the things that people will talk about, and I've had friends who, who decided to go from one denomination to another because they said, oh, they have a better line of apostolic succession, which means that bishops lay hands on you. And whoever laid hands on those bishops was in line of succession, supposedly, theoretically, whatever. You could trace that line all the way back to the apostles. And so that's important to people sometimes. I think it's mostly a red herring of importance because it's, it's just a way to say, I'm, un, I'm unhappy where I am, so I'm going to go over here. Because nobody can trace those lines. It's impossible. Even the Vatican can't do that because of a fire in the Vatican many years ago. Those lines don't exist. They just believe that they must. So the... But the truth is, my question then becomes, all right, so is Paul an apostle? And if if the answer to that is yes, and it is, then who laid hands on Paul? Well, this guy named Ananias in Damascus. Well, who had laid hands on Ananias? So, and we see the effect of his hands being laid on Paul, on Saul was, well, he received the Holy Spirit and he was healed. So we know that God did the action in that work of Ananias. So uh, it's, no, if somebody wants to tell you that they have great lines of apostolic succession, ask them, all right, who, who ordained Ananias? <laughs> At any rate, now let's move into the gospel. And this is after the resurrection, obviously, because all, everything we're going to look at during this Easter season has to do with after the resurrection appearances. And so this is the one where Jesus appears to the disciples up on the Sea of Galilee while they're fishing. So after this, Jesus having revealed himself to Thomas, Jesus revealed himself again to the disciples at the Sea of Tiberias, and he revealed himself in this way. So now you're going to get a list of the people who are there. Simon, Peter, Thomas, called the twin, Nathaniel of Cana and Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and two others of his disciples were together. And Simon Peter said to them, so there's what, one, two, three five, seven people in all here. Simon Peter said to them, I'm going fishing. Well, that's what he did. Before Jesus made him a fisher of men, he was a fisherman. So he says, I'm going fishing. They said to him, we'll go with you. They went out and got into the boat, but at that night they caught nothing. Now, this should be a familiar story. John knows it's a familiar story. It's in Luke 4, for instance, tells of Peter, James, and John, and Andrew all being out fishing that night, catching nothing, and then they have an encounter with Jesus. And so John's given us the clues that this story relates to that story in Luke 4. That night they caught nothing. That's the clue that this relates back to that other story. Just as a day was breaking, as day was breaking, Jesus stood on the shore, yet the disciples didn't know that it was Jesus. And he said to them, Children, do you have any fish? And they answered him, No. He said to them, Cast the net on the right side of the boat, and you'll find some. So in that other story, what happens is that that Peter's, they're cleaning their nets. Jesus gets into the boat with them and pushes out a little bit from the shore and afterwards says, let down your nets for a catch. And Peter says, look, we've been fishing all night there, carpenter. Um, (laughs) We're fishermen. You're a carpenter. We've been fishing all night. We hadn't caught anything. But because you say so, after hearing you teach, I'll go ahead and do it to humor you. And then pulls in this great catch of fish. And then Peter falls at his feet and says, Lord, go away from me. I'm a sinful man. And then Jesus calls him and says, I'll make you fishers of men. So here we see the same thing. They, they don't have any fish. And then Jesus tells them, do this. Go on the right side of the boat and, and you'll find some. So they cast it. 
And now they were not able to haul it in because of the quantity of fish. The disciple whom Jesus loved, John, the writer of the gospel, said to, therefore said to Peter, It's the Lord. When Simon Peter heard it was the Lord, he put on his outer garment, for he was stripped for work, and threw himself into the sea. And the other disciples came in the boat, dragging the net full of fish, for they were not far from the land, but about a hundred yards off. So Peter's going to swim a hundred yards and, and get to Jesus. He can't wait to help them pull this catch of fish in, and they have to drag it. They can't pull it into the boat. It's going to swamp the boat, so they have to bring it into shore by dragging it along with the boat. When they got out on land, they saw a charcoal fire in place with fish laid on it. Where did he get the fish, right? I mean, because it's not the stuff that they brought. He already had fish from somewhere and bread. Does that remind you of the feeding miracles? Because it was always fish and bread, fish and bread. So here it comes. Jesus has these things there, and there's a charcoal fire there in order to cook the fish on. Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish that you've just caught. You know, it's add to what I already have. You're bringing your gifts to what I've offered. And it's the way that we're supposed to live. He gives us, we give back. We, we are providing also. It's always he uses us to provide, but he provides. And so, so it's expanded from what we would otherwise have. So Simon Peter went aboard and hauled the net ashore full of large fish, 153 of them. John, the writer, the fisherman, counted them. <laughs> he's amazed at how many of these large fish there are. And so John remembered down those years until he wrote that gospel as an older man, how many fish they had caught that day. You can just hear the marvel and the wonder in his voice when he provides that number. That's otherwise unremarkable and immaterial, except if you're a fisherman. What a catch we had that day. And although there were so many, the net was not torn, which would have been typical if you pull that net in with that great weight of fish in it, then the net would have torn from the weight of the fish being lifted. Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. Now, none of the disciples dared ask him, who are you? Well, John's already told them, it's the Lord. Are they not recognizing him here? I mean, it's, it's an odd thing. I'm not really sure what's going on, to be perfectly honest with you. I don't know why they would have said they knew it was the Lord. If they knew it was the Lord, then why would they have asked who he was? I'm just not sure what John means by telling us that, to be honest with you. So Jesus came and took the bread and gave it to them, and so would the fish. I mean, it's the same thing he did when he fed the multitudes. He would he would take them, he would pray over them and bless them, and then he would break them, and then he would give them to those who were there. This was now the third time that Jesus was revealed to his disciples after he was raised from the dead. The first was the the first day of the week, the day that he was resurrected. The second was a week later when Thomas was with them, because he wasn't with them before. And now it's the third time. And when they had finished breakfast, he said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He's holding this up and saying, do you love me more than these, these others? Do you love me more than they do? And he says, yes, Lord, I do. And what's going on here? So we're going to get this pattern three times, and it's the same number of times that he denied Jesus on the night of his trial. He said to him, yes, Lord, no, you know that I love you. He said to him, feed my lambs. He said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Same answer as the first time. He said to him, tend my sheep. He said to him the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. And Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. 
So he's giving him the care of those sheep of his own flock. And Jesus has already said, I'm the good shepherd. So what he's doing here is he's deputizing Peter among the others, sort of as the chief disciple or apostle at some level. He's obviously putting him in a unique position within, within the group of the apostles because he's called him out separately. And I believe he's done it for two reasons. One is to restore him for the three times that he denied him that night. And so this pattern of this threefold, do you love me, is the restoration of Peter to the role that was designed for him from the beginning. He's, he's restored fully and, and now brought back in and given the task of feeding Jesus' sheep and tending his sheep. And, and it's important that Peter get this message because that's the way that we are to consider the people in Jesus' flock. They are his sheep. They're helpless. They're they're needy in, in in not a bad way. You know, you, you can be needy. A baby is needy, but it's not wrong for that baby to have needs. And it's, it's not wrong that they need someone else to fulfill those needs for them, to provide those for those needs. And that's exactly what Jesus is saying here. He has already told us that he is the great good shepherd, the one of Psalm 23, the one in Ezekiel, the one in Isaiah, the one in Zechariah. And now he's saying, I'm raising up new shepherds for my sheep. It's not those shepherds who are in Jerusalem. It's these people. And he's raising Peter into the role as chief shepherd at some level here. doesn't mean that that then, then transfers from Peter to the next person as though there's some inherited kind of a line in this. No, God's going to consistently raise up whoever he wants to be the leader of leaders. And so here, it's Peter. And at some level, you would say he's the most unlikely one because he's the one whose story is sort of the worst actions around the time of the trial and the crucifixion. And so, but instead, God chooses him and raises him up as the one who's going to, to be the leader. He says, truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. But when you're old, you'll stretch out your hands and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. This, he said, to show by what kind of death he was to glorify God. And after saying this, he said to him, follow me. So again, God had a good plan for Peter's life. We know that, that, that he did because he's good himself. And so he can only give good gifts. So we know that Peter's death, which is foretold right here, and he's crucified, is, is what happens to Peter ultimately. He is led to where he doesn't want to go. So what we know is, is, is that, that God's good plan can sometimes cut across our desires and wishes and our hopes. And it's important that we react to that truth in the right way. It's important for multiple reasons. One, it'll make our life a lot easier if we rest and have peace in the goodness of God, and therefore that all things that come into my life, all things that happen, I believe are good in some ultimate and eternal way. And it's a very important thing for us to, to consider always in the way we think about the things that happen in our lives and in the lives of others. We need to believe in a good God in order that we not get lost and go down the rabbit hole of if only this, then, then this could have been avoided as though I were God. Because if this had happened, I could arrange it this way, 
and this wouldn't have happened. Well, that wouldn't be best. Because like Job, I lack the knowledge necessary to know what is truly best. I lack the knowledge to know what is truly good. I don't know what came before. I don't know the fullness of what the present is. And I certainly don't know the future. And so, but I believe in the one who does. Because he is the one who was and is and is to come. That's meant to comfort us. That's meant to comfort us in our times of sorrow, that while we might experience the the loss, we're intended to know that that was best. And that's exactly what what Jesus is doing here. He's telling Peter, you're not going to die a natural death. You're not going to die a death you want to die. You're going to be taken where you don't want to go. But it's best. And that's where the comfort comes in, is knowing that to be true. Like I said, it doesn't change the grief, doesn't change the pain, but it does change the way I think about all of that in such a way that I can have comfort and I can have peace because God's sovereign and he's good. In the final reading, it's just four verses from Revelation, and it's the proclamation in heaven after the revelation in heaven of the Lamb before the throne who takes the scroll from the one seated on the throne. He's the only one found worthy in heaven and on earth or under the earth. I mean, the, the worthiness of Christ surpasses everything we could ever think. It surpasses the worthiness of the angels in heaven. It, it surpasses the worthiness of the four creatures around the throne. Jesus' righteousness makes him worthy in a way no other creature in heaven, earth, or under the earth is worthy. He is supreme above all things. So that's the proclamation here. When he takes the, the scroll, John says, Then I looked, and I heard around the throne, and the living creatures, and the elders, the voice of many angels, numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands. This is an uncountable number of angels proclaiming here, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain, to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. So he is the great good shepherd, but he became like one of us. He became like a sheep. So he is the lamb who was slain, the one who laid down his life for us, who took on flesh, became one of the sheep, now has appeared before the throne, and he is worthy to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all of them saying to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb, be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. What a reversal that is. I've said this before, that 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 moment has the potential, if they're wrong, for everything to end in that moment. But the proclamation that the one on the throne and the Lamb are worthy of receiving blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever is Trinitarian statement of truth, that they are the same. They are homoousios, as the Nicene Creed says, they are of one substance. Whatever God is, Jesus is as well. And so he is elevated in the eyes of all those there. This lamb looking like it was slain is elevated to the same status as Yahweh in this moment. And, And it's important that we see that because then we know Jesus is good as well. And so we can trust 
him, no matter what it looks like to us or feels like to us, we can trust him that, that whatever happens is best in a sense we can't even begin to understand. And then finally, and the four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down in worship. So all of heaven participates in the worship of the Lamb in this moment. And we on earth join in that worship of heaven by pointing to Jesus and declaring him to be worthy, worthy of all love, worthy of adoration, worthy of respect, worthy of the title good. When he had finished his work, because he did it in perfect righteousness, he then can claim the title good. When the rich young ruler comes to him and he says, good teacher, Jesus says, no, 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 no. There's only one good, and that's God. Well, does that mean Jesus wasn't good in that moment? No, it just meant that he hadn't fulfilled all righteousness yet. He hadn't completed his task. The potential was there for it not to be good at the end of all things. And so what we need to remember, I think, out of all this, based on what we've been going through this week, is, is that we can trust him in all things. He is loving and generous and gracious, just as he was to Paul, just as he was to Peter. And he's always, his desire is to restore us, but not just to restore us to this lowly place in the corner. No, in both these cases, he made Paul, a persecutor of the church, he made into an apostle and the chief apostle to the Gentile world. And in Peter's case, he makes him the chief apostle among these apostles and raises him who sinned grievously against him by denying him three times that night. He raised him to this position of authority. Might not have been everybody else's choice, but it was Jesus's choice, and therefore it was the best choice. Same with Paul, Saul, whichever one you want to call him today. But we have to remember that always, that he is good, and that's the beginning of all the way we understand everything that happens to us and around us, is it begins with he is good, and therefore he brings forth good. Therefore, no matter what I think about what happened, I know that ultimately it is good because he can do nothing else.